two things to think about. And let's not count this as sermon time, okay? <laughs> bonus time. Thank you, Joe. Bonus time. This is bonus time. My goal for today is that the end of this message, you will not feel guilt. But you will be set free in how you think. There's going to be some part probably in this where you're not going to feel like that. But that really is my goal. To set our thinking free. Second thing, something from last week. We are not slaves to the toxic waste of thinking in our world. We're not slaves. And today, we're going to talk about why we're not slaves. So Jesus, would you help us today? Because you know us and you formed us and you shaped us. And you made us beautiful in your image, which means you gave us the capability and the capacity to reason and think and wonder and imagine. Jesus, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet your people as we gather? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're still not to sermon time yet. Let's review from last week three things. The first thing is this. When you left here, we gave you some tools, and those tools are available again today if you didn't pick them up. But go ahead and first slide. We're going to hand out, um, again, we have available this worksheet for a year of Philippians 4.8 where you can record ways in which you're changing your thinking, especially about being grateful and those kind of things. But around Philippians 4.8, there is a link for this on the newsletter, in the newsletter, and you can just download that link if you want, have it electronically, but we do have some extra sheets that are available. So the first thing is make 2024 a year of Philippians 4.8. The second thing is memorize Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And we're going to talk a little bit about what, the, the idea of memorization and the idea of knowing words and how that's not everything. But we have these little business-sized cards that if you haven't taken one, if you'd like one, you can have one. Mine's sitting on my dashboard, as I said last week. And you can memorize it on the front and on the back. There's those questions that help you apply this idea of Philippians 4.8. And then lastly, find some Philippians 4.8 partners. And if you look up here, next one, please. If you look at the next slide, this little, um, it says mind control, but the actual um, name of that little devotional on the Uversion Bible app is Think About What You Think About. And if you have not done this, I would encourage you to do this. Today's the last day for me doing it and a group of others. And if you'd like to invite someone, we have these bookmarks for you that you can put this in your Bible. You can put it at Philippians 4.8. But you can hand to a friend and you can say, hey, you want to do this devotional with me? But here's the warning I'm going to give you about this devotional. This devotional was written for teenagers. It has awesome videos that I'm loving. Some of them are a little hokey to me. But that's probably because I'm a little hokey, right? But it's awesome. It's been awesome. 
And we're going to probably release another devotional, another little devotional piece out of version, looking at some others that you can then keep working at it. So all through this month especially, we want to keep thinking about what it means to think on these things, but get some people to do it with you. There's something about doing together with others that sticks in our minds. One of the reasons why gathering is so critical for us as well. Well, let's think about some things. Stand with me, please. And let's recite together Philippians 4.8. We're going to go ahead and put it up there for those of us who have not fully memorized it yet. Are you ready? Now, I, I get words mixed up. I'm going to try my best, but I keep, like, messing up right and pure, so I'm going to try my best not to mess that up. But if I mess it up, just someone call it out and say, you messed it up. All right, let's say it together. Here we go. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there's been this amazing development of technology that you may even possess, I don't, I don't know, but it's this idea of the self-driving vehicle, right? Or at least self-driving vehicle, so-called. And maybe you've seen this commercial. Let, let's see that image. It's kind of hard to see, but it's the GMC truck commercial, and it's the, it's the husband and the wife. They're going down the road, and all of a sudden he takes his hands off the wheel, right? And he begins to clap according to... We will, we will rock you. First question. What in the world does that song have to do with that truck? He's riding down the road. He's not even driving over rocks. You know, something. But there has been this amazing response to that commercial that I did not know of. And primarily, a negative response. Because of what's implied that you can now, like, just have a good time and not have responsibility while you're driving. In fact, one guy said this, I want to put my foot through the TV. <laughs> and my first thought was, maybe he needs to read Philippians 4.8. <laughs> but what is so alluring about this technology that you may have? Huh? Maybe you have it in your car. I think it's the idea that we can at least how it's portrayed, that we can shift into automatic pilot, autopilot, and then we can just, like, have a good time. But the lawyers of GMC will remind you that the fly-by-wire technology <laughs> is intended to assist the driver, not take over for the driver. Sometimes I think we want an autopilot feature in life. But you know, I know, there is no such thing. And there especially is no such thing in life with God through relationship with Jesus Christ. Like all relationships that matter, autopilot is not an option that comes with the package. And the truth is, autopilot does not exist when it comes to Philippians 
In other words, just committing words to memory does nothing. You say, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, you just told us to memorize Philippians 4.8. Absolutely. <clears throat> but just committing a bunch of scripture to memory does nothing. Just piling in scripture, just having scriptural knowledge, just having some kind of religious knowledge or tradition or any of that does nothing in and of itself. Remember what we see in verse 9, these words, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. He, he just told us that we're to think on these things, and now he's saying, you know, that's the kind of stuff you need to put into practice. And you see what practice means? If you want to know what practice means, watch the football games today. Right? Watch some yesterday, watch some today. And look what they do. If you want to see what practice looks like, if once, look what these musicians did today. They, they, these musicians don't just come in here on Sunday morning and go, hey, let's just see what we can do. They get their music ahead of time. They work at it. On Thursday, they typically have a rehearsal here. They come here early with their families and with whatever, and they sacrifice that time to train. To train. And it doesn't take a week to get ready for what they do. It's taken them years to get ready for what they do. Practice. Training. Practice means to give oneself to regular training. So how do you train to think about these things? Well, let's go back to these traits, these characteristics, these, these directives on thinking. Let's refer to them as a grid. A grid for our thinking. Or if, you, if it's helpful for you, a filter for your thinking, but a grid. Just imagine a grid. And let's just ask questions. We're just going to ask questions for a few moments. Here's the first question. How have you been practicing thinking of what is true? How have you been doing that? How have you been staring at reality and speaking truth? Let me ask this. How have you been telling the truth to yourself about yourself? And about life? And about God? Second question. How have you been practicing thinking of what is noble? What is awe-inspiring? How, how have you put your mind on something majestic and wonderful? Makes, just, makes your, just makes you wonder. How have you been practicing thinking of what is right? Uh, the, it's the root word of the root of righteousness. Maybe, maybe the way we ask it is, how are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Jesus said if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. How are you truly thinking about what is just according to Jesus? How have you thought about Christ-affirming thoughts? How have you been practicing opening up your life to the worship of God? That's what the Greek word literally means when we speak of pure. Opening up your heart to the worship of God. How have you been doing that? How have you been dwelling on the holy and the sacred? Words that we do not use in our world anymore. Sacred, 
holy. How have you been dwelling on those? How have you been practicing, this is my favorite one, thinking on what is lovely. We seem to live in a loveless world. How have you been thinking about that which is lovely? And what, what I like about that, it literally has this idea of attractive, beautiful grace. How have you been thinking about attractive, beautiful grace? This morning, as I was going, coming to church this morning in the southern, the southern horizon was an amazing sunrise. It was so beautiful. We need beauty for our minds, hearts, and souls. How have you been practicing thinking of what is admirable or how some say admirable? How have you been giving your mind to admiring Christ-likeness? How have you been practicing thinking of what is excellent? That's a classic term in Greek philosophy that speaks of moral knowledge. How have you been practicing thinking of what is moral, but it's more than that, not just head knowledge? How have you concentrated on the highest and best good, especially as it relates to other people? How have you been practicing on the highest and best good? Thinking about that. And lastly, how have you been practicing thinking of what is praiseworthy? How are you praising Jesus? This might be the one that's like, the most practical, the easiest to apply in some ways. So let me ask it this way. What are you praising Jesus for right now? Remember Horatio Spafford going over the water? This was, his, his whole world was torn apart, and yet here he is talking about this stability in God. Had nothing to do with feelings, circumstances none of that so how as an act of your will are you choosing to praise God right now what are you praising Jesus for right now see those questions all of a sudden they, that changes this passage for us and it turns it to this idea of training of, of this idea of practice that that this is not going to happen you can memorize Philippians 4.8 all you want. You can memorize it in the Greek. You can memorize it in various languages. You can memorize it in all kinds of versions and translations. But it means nothing. If we don't take it and begin to train our minds according to it. And that's hard. I wish I could say to you, this is so easy. Just keep memorizing it and everything's going to be all right. Your brain's going to figure it out. No, no, no. The way that your brain changes, that neuroplasticity of your brain will be when you actually give yourself two thoughts that are true, when you actually give yourself two thoughts that are lovely, when I give myself two thoughts that are right, you know, and, and that is important to recognize. And there's a scripture that kind of captures this, this idea of training. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, you know these words perhaps. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Do you see how that is like an act? Throw off the stuff that's getting in the way of your life with Jesus. Throw off the stuff that is sin, which is a choice against God's will. Throw off the stuff 
that doesn't align with what, who Jesus is. Throw that off, he says. Then goes on. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That sounds like an athlete. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's exactly what we sang about when we talked about his amazing love. But here's the deal. This idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus is actually about thinking. And it literally has this connotation to it. It's turning our attention from one thing to another. Turning our attention from what's over here to what's over here. Changing our focus. And, and, and so that begs me to ask this question. This is the most important question this morning. What impacts my thinking? I know that just seems like, well, yeah, of course. I, would I, but we have to ask that with honesty. Because we are not living in a neutral environment for our thinking. The power of ideas is a critical component to the ways in which we are shaped. We are shaped by our ideas. And those ideas are what some, many people have called them, John Mark Homer included, calls them mental maps. Now, we have Google Maps or Waze, so quick survey, how many people are Google Maps people? All right, pans down. How many are Waze people? I see the Waze people. How many of you, you be careful what you say, Jeff. How many of you use the dreaded Apple Maps? I see you. I'm sorry. That Apple Maps is a problem for me. It's a problem for me on my phone. But we have all that technology. It navigates us through roadways and signs and traffic snarls. It's really pretty great. It's pretty great for me until I get into downtown Boston. Then those buildings get in the way, and next thing you know, my, 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 the Google thing just goes, just spins around. My, it looks like my car is going like this, what I'm doing. So it's not all that great at certain times. But you see, we also have internal maps. Here's an example. I can get in my car right now, I can drive to Logan Airport, and I will not need a GPS. I have an internal map. I can, I can, I can, get in my car, I can drive to my sister Carol's on the South Shore, or my sister Debbie in Boston, or my brother out in Worcester area. I can, I can drive, I do not need GPS. It, and it's like the map is in my head. I, I do not need a mental map to go to any number of coffee shops. In fact, sometimes what happens is, I end up going to coffee shops and I go, why am I going here? I wasn't planning on going here. I've done that more times than I want to admit. Where else? I get off at eggs and I go, but I was just going to the dump. Why am I going to the coffee shop? <laughs> Mental maps. But here's the, here's the reality. The mental maps we have guide us in life. We have, we have mental maps that are core to who we are our ideas, 
ideas about ourselves, ideas about the world, ideas about God. John Mark Comer writes in his book, I would highly recommend, Live No Lies. In the same way that we have mental maps to get to work or school or a favorite coffee shop, we have mental maps for all of life. Our ideas form a mental map for how we navigate reality. You see, here's what's most important about all that. That's a lot, I know. We got more coming, that's a lot. But we are not to be passive in the formation of our mental maps. We are not to be passive in feeding our thinking. I would say it even stronger. We cannot be passive. Remember what we talked about when we said fix our eyes on Jesus, turning our thoughts from one thing to another. Well, let's, let's all take out the supercomputer that you possess today. If you'd like to, you don't have to, but take your phone out. See if you have your phone. Just take it out. Just hold it in your hand. Feel the weight of it. Okay? Some of you have like those TV size phones. I don't have one of those. I, I just thought, where would I put that? I mean, I like need a whole strap for that thing. I don't have one of those. I just have this iPhone 12. It's working well all these years. We carry one of the most potent influencers in the world, in our pockets. We now get and do or have the capacity to get and do much of life through this supercomputer, which, by the way, you probably, I know our engineers know this, is 900 million times faster than the computer module that was used to put a man on the moon in 1969. This weighs about six ounces. That weighed 70-something pounds, right? This, all that to say this, this is fast. Quite literally, you could probably put someone on the moon with the power that's in this at one time. I know that's simplifying it. But think about that. It also means this for you and me today. We have an unimaginable rate of speed. We get information using this supercomputer. Just think about how often you are in this position, you swipe, you. One of my medical providers was talking to me about my posture and talked about the texting neck. Anyone else? Right? So we can get to information so quickly in our pockets. Entertainment, news media that comes at us, in super speed, hyper speed, silly pet videos. You can order dinner. You can order home supplies. You can order and buy a car. 
if you want to order and buy me a car through your phone, you can do that. <laughs> but we can do that. I just want us to think about this. And now hear this. None of that power, none of it, is intended to protect your ability, your capacity, or the content of what you think. None of it. Sometimes quite the opposite. So as John Eldridge asks, what does the constant barrage of the trivial, the urgent, the mediocre, the traumatic, the heartbreaking, or the buffoonish do to us this stuff that we pay attention to on demand. We hit the button to pay attention to it. But what it does, it really impacts our ability to think. Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows. I highly recommend it. About what the internet does to our brain. And what I'm going to share with you is a dense quote, but I just want you to hang with me just for a little more on this stuff. He says this, the neural circuits devoted to scanning, skimming, and multitasking, right? Are expanding and strengthening, while those for reading and thinking deeply are weakened and eroding. The mental functions that are losing the survival of the busiest brain cell battle are those that support calm, linear thought. Those are the ones we draw on when we reflect on our experiences or contemplate outward or inward phenomenon. Big deal. Except, what does this mean for a spiritual life? Well, it means we're losing our capacity for prayer which requires stilling the mind. We're dulling our capacity for deep Bible reading to really read the story of God. And that's all true, but here's the, here's the next one. And, and let me just say this. I am guilty as charged with this. That's why I'm preaching to me, and you can listen in if you want. Here's the third one. We're compromising our capacity for compassion. Because you know what compassion requires? It requires reflection. It requires the ability to reflect on my ideas and my thoughts and the way I see other people and make a conscious choice to love them and to bring compassion to the equation. That's why this is important. In a world where social media and news media and our addiction to screens of every size imaginable, small, large, this lack of mental space to think deeply all impacts my thinking capacity and ability. So the Apostle Paul's words are very instructive to us in another part of the Bible. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it'd be worth reading verses 1 through 5 sometime today, but he says this in verse 5, we are to be bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And, and that word, that idea of captive, is what you would think it is. It's seize it. We are to seize our calculating, our, our, our ability to reason. We are to seize the, the, the process of reflection, reflection. We're to seize, we're to take prisoner our thoughts. We are to train them. And we are to train them with one goal in mind and only one. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we are to train our thoughts to live the way of Jesus. We're to train our thoughts to follow in the way of Jesus. And that means something. That means something very important. And here it is. You are the gatekeeper of your mind. I'm not. The most spiritual person in the world that you know is not. Your parents are not. Your friends are not. The talking heads on news media are not. The sports commentators are not. You and I, I am the gatekeeper of my mind. No one else. And so I can't blame anybody about the way I think. Because I'm not a slave. I can choose. I understand the power of influence. That's what this is all about. It's not he who has the most toys wins. It's he who can influence the most wins. So what's influencing me? What's causing me to think so? So because I'm the gatekeeper of my thinking, these are the questions the gatekeeper has to ask. What am I thinking? How am I thinking? And what or who is forming my thinking? That's like really important. What or who is forming my thinking? Now, if we're going to practice that first trait in Philippians 4.8 anywhere, whatever's true, this is a really good place to practice it because we need to be honest about asking a question, which is what, is, what or who is forming my thinking? Who is forming my thinking? Is Jesus Christ forming my thinking? And is the, are the scriptures forming my thinking? Or is something else forming my thinking more than those two? That's a really important question for us today. I love the way the message captures 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are to be fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. So it implies this intentional action on my part when it comes to how I think by changing what I think and what I feed my mind. Well, here is, here's one way to think about putting Philippians 4.8 into action. I, I don't know who wrote this. There's n numerous attributions to who wrote this poem I'm going to share. But let's look at the next thing. Read this with me. Here we go. Fast from criticism and feast on praise. Fast from self-pity and feast on joy. Fast from ill temper and feast on peace. Fast from resentment and feast on contentment. 
Fast from jealousy and feast on love. Fast from pride and feast on humility. Fast from selfishness and feast on service. Fast from fear and feast on faith. You may see that again. We may bring that back during Lent, but that's a powerful thought. Well, all of that to bring good news. And here's the good news. Here's the place of freedom. I said something last week I want to repeat. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not the, ha- the, the glass is half full optimism. None of that. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ offers us grace at this point of our thinking. It's not about me trying to figure out how to give my mind better mental maps. You see, the Bible says something extraordinary when it comes to our thought processes. Another passage well worth reflecting deeply upon would be 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. Verse 12 says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world. Not that toxic stuff. But the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. And then Paul says something that is mind-blowing. He finishes this passage and he says this, for we have the mind of Christ. For we have the mind of Christ. And what that means is, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God. So that means we have received grace from God in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to have the capacity to think as Jesus thinks. To think Jesus-like thoughts. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I haven't met Jesus in the flesh, nor have you. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture teaches us that he dwells in us as we place our faith in him. And his spirit can help form and shape our mind. He can help us think on these things. My friend Dallas Willard says, his grace will accompany every step of the way, but will never permit us to be merely passive in our spiritual formation in Christ. But his grace will attend to us all along the way. That's the good news. You're not in this by yourself. You're not in this alone. We have the greatest advocate, Jesus. But this is, this is more than the gospel of the minimal entrance requirements, as John Ortberg puts it. This is more than just mental assent. This is more than just giving yourself a religious label. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, that some of the largest non-attending, one of the greatest religious labels growing in America that are primarily made up of non-attending church is the label evangelicals. It's become more of a political party than it has in times become 
identifying people who are committed to relationship with Christ more and more and more. So it's, it's just not about putting a label on us. It's not about what I was taught when it comes to evangelism, which is just pray a prayer. And if you just pray the prayer, you're good. You're in. It's, it's more than that. It's more than the minimal entrance requirements. Jesus wants to just not save our souls. He wants to renew our thinking. Not by the ways of the world. Jesus wants to renew, to renew and redeem our thinking. And the mind-blowing news, the good news that is mind-blowing is that we can have the grace from God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to change our thinking and become Christ-like in that. So what is the most true and noble, the most just and pure, the most lovely and admirable, the most excellent and praiseworthy thought? What is that one thought? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, in the voice paraphrase says, now stay focused on Jesus who designed and perfected our faith. Do you want to know what the best thought is? Jesus. Start with Jesus. Start with the way of Jesus. Start with the love of Jesus. Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. One of our journey groups right now is called Soul Keeping. It's reflecting on a book by John Ortberg, along with our journey group on Sunday morning on the book of Genesis. Two very good places to let your thinking grow. But I want to share a story that that book opens with. And my understanding is, I didn't know this today, but the journey group this morning reflected on this story. It's the story about the keeper of the stream. There was once a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a gorgeous stream. The stream was fed by waters that were clear, like crystal. Children played beside it. The geese and the swans would come and swim in it. You could see the rocks and the sands, you know, like you look straight through it and you could see the, the fish swimming. But high in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as the keeper of the stream. He had been hired long ago. No one could remember when he wasn't there. He would go from one stream to the other, and he would remove branches and, and leaves and debris that might pollute the water. But no one saw his work. No one. One year, the town council decided that, you know, we really need to save some money. We need to cut the budget. And they determined that they really didn't need someone to clean the streams. I mean, nobody saw them anyway. They needed, they needed to repair roads. They needed to lower taxes. They needed to do those services, give the services that were needed. Giving money to some unseen stream keeper, well, that was a luxury we could no longer afford. So high in the mountains, the springs went untended. Twigs and branches and debris and worse muddied the water. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm wastes turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. And for a time, it was all good. 
No one noticed. But after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish, gray. The swans flew away. The geese migrated away from the water. It no longer had that beautiful crisp scent that the children would come and play around as children do. And the people in the town began to develop different sicknesses and diseases. You see, the life of the village depended on the stream. Everyone noticed the loss of this beautiful sparkling water that used to flow but they forgot that the life of the stream depended upon the stream keeper. And so the city council was reconvened. Money was found and the old man was rehired. And yet, after another time, the springs were cleaned. The stream became pure. Children played on its banks again. Illness was replaced by health. The swans came home. And the village came back to life. Because the life of a village depended on the health of the stream. Your stream, the stream, is your soul. And you are the keeper. The keeper of your stream. And you are the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper of your mind. Which is an entry point into your soul. Think about such things. <laughs>